Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Maria Konikova here with me from New York. Welcome to my podcast, Maria. Thank you so much for having me. And and also this is uh, thanks to our mutual friend, Adam Grant, who actually connected us and pointed me in, in your direction. We love Adam. Yeah. <laughs> and he is, you know, something that Adam actually is really wonderful at doing is connecting people and making introductions. I think that's that's a true talent. Um, many people try to do it and can't, and he does it effortlessly. And all of his introductions seem to work. <laughs> Yeah, it's like he's reading some kind of wavelengths and you can like understand the match somehow. Amazing. But just as a short intro uh, about you, I would just say one sentence, actually. Maria Konikova is the award-winning author, journalist and psychology writer who in 2018 surprised everyone, including herself, by becoming a world champion poker player. So Maria, I, I guess you're used by this time now to get this obvious question is like why <laughs> but i but i mean i mean like why from from a deeper level like you you don't come across as a person that's like doing it to win some easy pr points and so th there has to be something else that made you do this uh, uh you know so so um what is the, the answer to this i initially started playing poker because i became fascinated by the idea of luck and wanted to explore kind of the role that luck plays in our lives and wanted to figure out, you know, how do we learn to tell the difference between the things we can control and the things we can't control? And how do we learn to maximize the things we can control and let go and accept that there will always be luck and that we will not be able to control at all? And When I realized I wanted to write about this, I wanted kind of luck to be the next big topic that I delved into, I just started reading a lot. I read a lot about chance, about probabilities, about all of these things. And I started reading John von Neumann's Theory of Games. Von Neumann was one of the great minds of the 20th century, polymath, you know, inventor of the computer, um, hydrogen bomb and game theory. And when I was reading Theory of Games, I learned that it was born from poker and that he believed that poker was a wonderful rubric for looking at human decision-making because it's a game of incomplete information. There are certain things that I know. There are certain things that you know. There are certain things both of us know, but nobody has all of the information. And so it's a game of people. It's a game of strategy. Um, it's a game of deep thinking. And he thought, you know, if I can solve this, I'll have a way of solving the most complex strategic decision-making in the world. He did not solve No Limit Hold'em. It's actually still not solved. It's kind of the golden standard for AI research, but he created game theory. And I did not have any interest in poker whatsoever. I'm not a games player. I'm not a card player. I don't like casinos. I don't like gambling. That's not my thing at all. But I was really intrigued 
when I read what von Neumann had to say about the game. So I started reading about poker and decided that this was actually going to be a really interesting way into the topic. So I decided to start playing as a way of exploring chance and using poker as a metaphor for life. Hmm. <laughs> Amazing. And it's really, uh, when I was a teenager, I played a lot of poker uh, with my dad and his friends, uh, you know, just to tease them a little bit. I was always losing, <laughs> I losing but still, you know. <laughs> but it's really like, uh, if you compare it to the like business world context, it's mastering some kind of complex decision making. And, and as you say, you, you, you cannot be always in control. You have to dare. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I actually have found that poker has made me a much stronger decision maker outside of poker, that understanding the game on a deep level has helped me make better decisions, learn to think through problems, learn to analyze problems, learn to analyze my own decision making in a way that I previously didn't do. It was a really mind and eye-opening experience and one that I highly recommend to other people as a way of making yourself the best version of decision making you. And what about emotions? Do they get in the way here? Uh, well, I think poker really teaches you about emotional control. So I, um, when I was getting my PhD in psychology, I studied decision-making and specifically risky decision-making, decision-making under conditions of uncertainty and emotional decision-making. We stressed people out. We put them in very hot environments. And most of my research actually involved people playing these simulated stock market games where they were making financial decisions under pressure. And the person I was working with, my advisor, was Walter Michel, who was uh, known as the marshmallow guy, the guy who studied delay of gratification, who studied the kids back in the 60s that basically showed that the amount of time that you waited for a marshmallow when you were four or five years old went on to predict how well you did in school, how happy you were, how healthy you were. So your ability to kind of delay gratification, to manage your emotions, to withstand temptation in this hot state was incredibly predictive of success in life. And so this was the person I was working with and doing all these studies with. So it was always very top of mind. And I was always looking at self-control, emotional management, all of these things. They're difficult skills to manage. And there are lots of ways that you can fail each and every day. And in poker, a lot of these threads of my research and my interest actually came together. And I think the game enabled me to become better at some of those things that I wasn't quite able to master when I was just thinking of them in the abstract, when I was just looking at them you know, in terms of research as a psychologist. Because there's something about the human mind that makes it very well suited to learning from doing, to learning from experience, but very poorly suited to learning from reading, from description, from just hearing about things. So when we when we actually do, when we actually immerse ourselves in something, that's when we learn the best. And poker ended up providing, I didn't know this in advance because I didn't know anything about the game, but it turned out that it was this perfect laboratory um, for actually experiencing all of these things in a way that you were then able to kind of go back and learn how to deal with them in a way that is very difficult to do in everyday life. Hmm. <laughs> but is poker still 
a part of your everyday life somehow or? It was. Um, so my, my book, The Biggest Bluff, um, is scheduled to come out on June 23rd. And that was supposed to be right in the middle of the World Series of Poker, which is the biggest poker event in the world of the year. Um, and it was a week before the start of the main event, which is kind of the thing that everyone looks forward to every single year. And I was going to be playing and I was going to be launching the book during this big poker thing. But with COVID, um, live poker is not happening right now. Um, it's just about the worst environment possible when it comes to disease spread. In fact, epidemiologists use poker as a way of looking at how diseases are transmitted because you are touching the same cards, you're touching the same chips, you're sitting next to each other. Long story short, what I used to do is no longer possible. But I came to love the game and I came to feel that it was a really strong way of making myself into a stronger individual. And so my mindset was always, while I'm enjoying it, while I'm learning from it, while it still has so much to teach me on so many different levels, I want to keep playing. Of course, you know, one of the things that I write about in, in The Biggest Bluff. And one of the things that poker taught me is that, you know, you really can't predict the future and you have no idea what cards will come next and nobody could predict what's happening right now. So as of now, I'm just writing. Luckily, I have, you know, writing can be done from home and uh, we'll see what happens. I hope that I'll be able to uh, keep playing at some point in the future. So what's the story behind the, the name, The Biggest Bluff? The name is actually, it sounds like it's going to be about a bluff I pulled in poker, but it's actually about one of the biggest themes of the book, because ultimately the book isn't about poker. It uses poker as a way of exploring all of these other things. And so the biggest bluff refers to the fact that when it comes down to it, life is just ruled by chance. And there are lots and lots of things that we can control But at the end of the day, you know, variance, chance, just the noise of the universe is going to have its say, and there's nothing we can do about that. The biggest bluff is the bluff that we have to tell ourselves that we have more control over our lives, over our destinies, over what happens to us than we actually do. I think it's an incredibly useful bluff. We need to believe it in order to be successful, in order not to fall into you know, this great depression and hopelessness, in order to be active, in order to take risks, in order to do new things. I think it's incredibly important to believe that you can control things and that you can succeed. But I do think that it's important to realize that at the end of the day, it's a bluff, that at the bottom of your mind, you have that knowledge because when shit hits the fan, when, when chance does what it's going to do, that knowledge will allow you to deal with it in a way that you wouldn't if you actually believed the bluff, if you actually didn't think that it was a bluff and you actually thought that you were in control of everything. Hmm. <laughs> that's yeah that's interesting but when when i think about for example uh you know we have uh maybe a dream about something we want to not just accomplish from from a materialistic point of view but just you know something big we are working on or or hoping to work to achieve uh maybe with others also one day so what is that because that's also when you have some kind of direction like that and dream in that 
in that way. That can also be, I mean, people are talking about law of attraction and all of these kind of things. But, but nevertheless, if you do have something like that, then you're working in a certain direction and things start to happen, even if you're obviously not under con- in, in control. But Absolutely. And that's why I said that I think it's an essential bluff. And I think it's something that we need to do because there are lots of things that you can do. And this isn't uh, an invitation to say, well, nothing matters. Nothing I do matters. Not at all. In fact, it's an invitation to take as much in your hands as you can and to really maximize the things that you can control because, you know, there will be things that you can't. And so you better be prepared for that. And some people are going to lead incredibly lucky lives. And if you're always lucky, you don't realize how lucky you are. I think that's something that people don't realize. If you've always been lucky, if you've been born healthy into a good family, if you have money, if things have gone your way, if you've always been in the right place at the right time, sometimes that has nothing to do with you. And sometimes people who you know are not that smart and not that motivated still succeed despite all of that. And they don't realize it. They think it's all them. And I actually think that it's incredibly important to constantly acknowledge how lucky you are um, just to be alive um, and to be healthy and to be here. One of the things that inspired the book was, you know, there were a few deaths in my family and I had a horrible health scare. You know, I was very, very sick for a while and it made me realize that, you know, you take these things for granted until you don't have them. And that's not something that you can control. You know, I'm healthy. I do yoga. I meditate. I eat well. You know, I take care of my body and anyone can get sick. And it's not a shortcoming of you. It's not a failure to, you know, do what's best for you. It just happens and it can happen to anyone. And it forces you to really appreciate how many things are going right for you on a near daily, you know, on a constant basis that you just take for granted. I don't want us to take it for granted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's so important what you say. And also, I guess that in a positive sense, is also then now more than ever forcing also you out of your comfort zone, if you have any of those. <laughs> and, and so it's like literally being less afraid of, of taking new steps and, and grow and, and, and all of that, right? Absolutely. I mean, to write this book, I left The New Yorker. And went into this new world and everyone thought I was crazy. It was a huge risk. It was a huge career risk. And everyone said, what are you doing? You're a writer. Why are you suddenly going, you know, traveling around the world and going to casinos? And I had no idea, you know, I had no idea what would happen. But I've always, you know, lived my life in a way that things should scare you. And whatever you do next should scare you to some extent. Otherwise, you're playing it a little too safe. Yeah. That's so true, but writing is, is is an art and a skill. And, and I know you. I know you've won numerous awards for for things you've been writing, including books and so on. And you're still writing, I guess, for for many like New York Times, right? And then uh... yes, and and for the New Yorker. No, I'm I'm now back, and I'm still writing. <laughs> I never <laughs> I never stopped writing, but I did kind of go on leave and uh, leave that world to play full time. And and when you when you write for all of these uh, in the Wall Street, Wall Street Journal and Boston Globe, et cetera, et cetera, for you, where does the conviction or urge to write about a specific topic then come from? It's a great question. And normally it comes from life. I know that that's a very broad answer, but I think it's so important for writers to also be readers um, and to to read more than they write and to live and to actually experience things. 
And so many times I have no idea that I want to write about something until I get curious about it or something happens or I read something and it sparks my interest. I might be reading a novel and a scene in it really speaks to me, or I might be walking down the street or talking to someone or, you know, doing something like that. And it's a story. Let me, I can give you a few examples. I wrote um, a piece a number of years ago for the New Yorker. I think it was actually one of my first pieces for them that was quite funny in terms of, you know, why would you ever write about it? It was about yawning because all of a sudden, you know, I was, I was yawning and I, I became so interested in why it happens and why do people yawn and you know, why is it contagious? And, you know, I ended up writing, you know, I don't remember 3,000, 4,000 words about yawning. My book, The Confidence Game, came out of a movie. I was watching David Mamet's um, House of Games and was fascinated by the central character and had never really thought about con artists in that light before and started researching it, realized no one had written about it in the way that I w- was curious about it. And so, you know, spent three years with con artists researching it. And it all came out of one night watching a movie and being interested by the central character. Amazing. Amazing. And you learn so much from it. And it's, um, it's also a way of observing everybody else with, with maybe, you know, insights and deep knowledge that nobody took the time to dig into that, that are really interesting. But are you sometimes, um, like deciding that there's one certain challenge that you want to help resolve or something like that so that you kind of keep a certain theme over a period of you know months or so in order to kind of influence because you have a big influence you know i i have th- felt that way um it's a constant challenge and it's a little frustrating i mean i went through a period when donald trump was elected where i wrote a number of pieces for the for the new yorker for politico you know for different outlets um about Trump as a con artist, about Trump's lies, about you know the psychology of lying and how it affects us and how we really need to be careful. And I went on television and kind of talked about it. And just, it felt like I was only talking to people who already agreed with me and that everyone else just wasn't listening. And it's it can be a frustrating battle, but I'm not a political writer. I don't normally write about politics. So that was a departure for me because I felt so strongly that we needed to speak out. I still do. And you know, that, that was one of those moments, but then there are certain things that, you know, it's not my background. Um, it's not what I write about, but it's something that I really care about, you know, global warming, things like that are things that are constantly on my mind. And I try to kind of advocate for it in different ways, but not necessarily by writing a book. Um, because I think that there are, you know, there are others better suited to, to do certain types of writing than I am. You're still in the lockdown in New York and so on. What do you see? I mean, what's going on in the sense of what are people kind of learning? How are people changing throughout these times? We see divisions in how people are dealing and how they're changing. There are the people who I think are really stepping up and you know they're doing everything they're supposed to be doing. They're staying home. They're wearing masks 100% of the time when they are outside. They don't remove them. They wear them correctly over their nose and their mouth, and they're hoping. You know, they they volunteer to do things um, because they realize suddenly, you know, that they're fortunate and that others are less able to help. So though that I think it brings out the best in some people. And then there are the people who, even in New York, 
which is you know, a liberal place, which is somewhere where you'd think people you know, would be kind of smart and respectful and people who listen to the science and who understand what's happening, you do have a division. You have the people who say, screw it. You know, yeah, I can't control it. And so why bother? I'm healthy. And they disregard all of the things about the fact that, you know, 30 to 40% of people are asymptomatic and can still spread disease. And they just go about their business. They take off masks. They, you know, they say, I'm the exception. And you see that, you know, I think that it's really bringing out what's inside people and how they deal with the world. Like any extreme situation, it brings, I think, the essence of who you are to the forefront. And for a lot of people, that's a wonderful thing. And for some people, it's not that pleasant because you see, wow, you're very selfish. You actually don't care about what's going on. And you are saying that you're not being selfish, so you don't even understand how selfish you're being. So it's a very interesting bifurcation. But I'm an optimist. And you know, despite writing about con artists, despite <laughs> writing about all the bad people in the world, you know, I do think that there are a lot of decent people out there. And I, I need to believe that the decency will prevail. And I think that a lot of cracks have come to the forefront. You know, we see a lot of the cracks in society and how society functions in the divisions of, you know, of wealth, of health, of all of these, of opportunities, of all of these different things. And I'm so, I hope that we emerge stronger from this. I hope that we actually deal with the cracks. I'm very scared that that's not going to happen, that instead it'll just go back to the way it was before, which isn't good. Yeah, and I'm also in that sense an optimist that hoping and seeing a lot of signs, at least around me, that also people on board different companies are you know, raising the bar and pushing for um, a more sound, uh, you know, wise kind of future, and to, to to be part of that architecture, to design it more deliberately, more more with the responsibility, and and if they don't do that, as you say, uh, by themselves in these times when it really is, counts, then I I assume also that their peers and 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 we as consumers and so on, clients of different kinds, we will also push them in this direction. So I, I see a lot of, if, if possible, to say positive kind of. Um, waves um, that will come out of this uh, from that perspective. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. But uh, Maria, we share one thing. And then when you were four, I read somewhere that uh, uh, you were born in Moscow, Russia, and uh, you came to the US when you were four. And I did the same, but not from Russia. I came from Serbia and my parents moved to Sweden, but exactly the same kind of uh, age and I know at least that it has influenced me a lot uh, in my way of being and, uh, and having these kind of double, triple kind of perspectives and glasses somehow to, to look at the world and see it in different ways. What about you? How has this uh, natural kind of double perspective or more influenced you? I think it's influenced me in more ways than I've realized when I when I look back on it. I don't know if you had this experience, but when I moved to the US, I remember it so incredibly well, even though I was only four years old. And I think it was kind of the the shock of everything changing, of kind of the the trauma of everything that had happened. We actually, when we left the Soviet Union, we lived for a time in Rome, in Italy, and then moved to the United States, as I think a lot of Russian Jews did at the time. And I remember, you know, not speaking a word of English, not understanding what was going on, not being understood. Did you have that experience as well? 
of not speaking the language? Uh, No, but I remember very vividly the moment after maybe just five, six months or so, me and my brother spoke the language because in five, six months we were speaking Swedish and my parents did not. And I realized that we knew something that they didn't. And I understood (laughs) at that time the power of of communication of language somehow that my God, we need to help them, you know? Yeah. That that was something that stayed with me. That that is fascinating. And I think that you and I had parallel realizations, but in a different way. So I didn't I went to school. And prior to that I had just been with my parents and I didn't speak a word of English. So I just vividly remember this this feeling of helplessness, of not being able to communicate. And I don't actually remember learning English, just like you don't remember learning Swedish, because you're a child and you're so lucky. A child's brain just picks up languages. And by the end of the year, you know, I I was fluent. My parents actually spoke English. Um, They'd studied it in school in Russia. So so they could communicate with, with accents. And, you know, my siblings and I ended up speaking fluently with no with no Russian accent. But I, I do think that that kind of constant, that duality of language made me aware of the power of language, of the power of communication, the power of being understood, and that I wouldn't have necessarily come to, or maybe I would have, but at a much later age. But I do think it's something that really profoundly influenced me. And also kind of just in a more in a more direct way, I think that I definitely, the way that I was raised and my sensibility does come out of two cultures. So we always spoke Russian at home. I'm so grateful to my parents for that because I know a lot of Russian families where the children lost the Russian because the parents were so scared um, that the children would not become Americanized, you know, that they wouldn't assimilate. So they would speak English. And I'm so grateful that that didn't happen. And so in our house, my culture was Russian. You know, we, we spoke Russian. I read in Russian. We watched Russian movies. And so, so I think that kind of having those voices in my head definitely affected my sensibility in a way that growing up with just an American surrounding would not have done. And I think it probably helped me think through things in a different way because we had so many different perspectives to bring to any discussion. It was always a big thing. You know, we had family meals every single day. We'd always have dinner together and we'd talk, you know, we'd talk about politics, we'd talk about culture, we'd talk about all these things and we'd debate. We definitely, I grew up in a household where people debate, people raise voices and it's all in, you know, it's all in good fun. Everyone, no one gets offended. But um, it's funny, my my husband, who's American, thinks that we yell too much <laughs> and always thinks that that we're yelling. And I want to say, we're not yelling. We're not mad at each other. This is just the way we are. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how it is here. Also in, in Italy, I am uh, married to an Italian. So, so obviously, you know, there there is this, nobody's waiting for their turn to speak. Everybody's like talking at the same time, you know, so you need to get, get with it. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I've had to try to learn not to talk over people in a in a private setting. You know, I never have that problem publicly, but some, you know, at home over dinner, over over a glass of wine, I uh, I definitely just want to express myself and listen to them. And it's not that I'm not listening; it's just that I'm participating. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> I had uh, my my mother actually recently reminded me of of a situation uh, that I've forgotten. I was like twelve years old or something, and she was always careful about us, you know, speaking Swedish when we were on a bus or whatever, you know, public space, so we would kind of you know fit in and so on. And I was probably going through a special period there, and I was really very kind of proud of my background of my origin. So I told her loud and clear in the bus in Swedish, I said, why are you switching from our language to Swedish just because we are on the bus? <laughs> and, you know, I had a huge argument with her there on the bus and she felt, she was like, why are you doing this to me? You know, lower your voice. And I, I was intentionally wanted her to hear this in front of all these other people because I thought that was wrong. She was, she was behaving in a way that she was not proud of her of her origin you know and that was for her not the point but you know <laughs> teenagers so it's funny that's a, that's a great story <laughs> but maria how there is a word um you know in, in latin the patire comes from from um, passion derives from patire uh which means really suffering so i was wondering when you're thinking about your like passion uh whatever that is that you're also willing to suffer for if needed to you what is that well, I mean, you know, the the suffering writer, right? <laughs> well, no, it, it, but it, it but it's true. You know, I wanted to write my entire life. When I was little, I told my parents that I was going to be a writer when I grew up. And then at some point in probably in middle school, when I was maybe 13 years old, I I stopped because I was reading all of these great books, all of these great novels, and I thought, "Wow, I could never do this. So, why why bother?" you know, this is just too much. It's too overwhelming. And so I just switched directions and said, I'm not going to write. It's pointless. And then I couldn't let it go. It kept coming back um, until, you know, in, in college, I ended up taking writing classes in fiction and it obviously became my life, but I kept coming back to it naturally over and over and over, even though I kept trying to push it away to say, no, no, you know, this isn't right. This isn't good. Who am I kidding? And so it's definitely something that's been with me as a passion throughout my life. And, you know, you don't suffer for writing in the sense that, you know, I have a roof over my head. I'm, you know, I, I'm doing just fine. But I think there's a lot of emotional suffering, but I would not put it on the same level as, you know, my, my sister's a doctor, so I, I don't have that kind of suffering that she does. She's a neonatologist. So every single day, you know, she is dealing with the most sick and vulnerable infants and their mothers. And what she does every day is just mind boggling to me and a constant inspiration. And I, you know, it puts everything in perspective. She's actually saving lives <laughs> every single day. And making lives, you know, babies who would have died end up living and having a full life because of her. And I mean, that's inspiring and that's wonderful. And it's not something I could ever do. And I have, you know, other than professionally, I do have, you know, passions for, for a lot of different things. And honestly, I have a passion for life and for knowledge and for curiosity. I feel so lucky to to be alive and I just want to learn as much as I can and soak it all in and try to make a difference in any small way that I can. And, and what about transformational points in your life uh, that have influenced you a lot? What are those apart from obviously coming to the U.S.? 
Yeah, I mean, that that is the most obvious one. And I think the most decisive one. I can't even begin to imagine what my life would have been had my family not left the Soviet Union. I'm Jewish at that time. That was not a pretty... That was not a pretty uh, future. Your options were severely limited. You know, there was a lot of anti-Semitism. And professionally, I, I don't think I would have been a writer. Who in the world knows what would have happened? That was a huge one. I think certain decisions that I made getting into college, um, getting into the college I wanted to go to, the people I ended up studying with who really shaped the course of my career graduate school, the same thing. The fact that I was able to work with Walter Michel, who became just this wise influence and mentor in my life. So I think that those types of inflection points where I did everything I could, but I could have gotten in, I could have not gotten in. With undergraduate, I only, you know, I got in early, so I it didn't have a choice. But for graduate school, I actually had a choice of school. So, you know, my life would have been very different had I not gone to Columbia, had I chosen to do something else, had I gone somewhere else, had I chosen to get an MFA instead of a PhD, that's a master in fine arts and study writing on a graduate level as opposed to psychology. So I think that all of those choices really ended up shaping who I was. A very funny one is, which I think is a funny inflection point, is deciding to pick up uh, Sherlock Holmes after not reading it, you know, since childhood, because that ended up starting my writing career, that book, um, because it inspired a series of articles that became my first book, um, that became a New York Times bestseller that propelled my career. And I don't, my career wouldn't exist without Sherlock Holmes. And, you know, who in the world knows why I decided to reread that book, but it, uh, from that point stemmed so much else. The so-called chance, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, Maria, I'm, I'm uh, a lot in, in, in this kind of, you know, moving in the business world and, and trying to influence things in a good direction there uh, with everything I do. Uh, what is your point of view in terms of um, this kind of business world? Uh, what do you believe in are the long-term solutions for, for businesses, really? I think something that's key, a common denominator for any business is to value its people and to actually value its people and not say we value our people. There's such a big divide between corporate speak, what corporations say and what they actually do. And the actions could not be more different from from the words. You know, you say we value our people, we value creativity. Oh, you messed up, you're fired. You took a risk and it didn't work out, you're fired. No, no, no. Uh, we don't reward that kind of creativity. We just reward it if it works. Well, that's that's not creativity. That's uh, that's uh, being focused on the outcome. Yes, absolutely. We, we value our people, but you have to be in the office for this number of hours a day, and this is what you need to do, and this is the rubric. And if you don't put in the FaceTime, you know, I think that you're not as motivated. I think that so often corporations just fail to use their human capital correctly. I mean, even calling them human capital, I hate that term. It's just horrible. It's dehumanizing. And I think that learning to see people as people and to respect them and to actually let them be heard and to let them do what works best for them. I mean, we found over and over in psychology that 
productivity, creativity, all of these things improve when people are given more control, when they're given more agency, when they're actually listened to. And I think that kind of giving people back more time, giving people back more responsibility will have huge dividends and allowing them to fail, allowing them to realize that they're human and that sometimes things are not going to work out. And for that to be okay, when people aren't afraid of failing, there's going to be communication. So many things stem from that in an organization. If I'm not afraid of failing, then I suddenly can communicate with my bosses about almost anything. I can try almost anything. I can tell you an idea I have and not be scared that you're going to shoot me down. So I think that a lot of, a lot of positive things will come from that simple change. If we would assume that all resources are available to you and all doors are open, is there anything in particular that you would like uh, rush to to change or innovate? You know, be it in your world or somewhere else. Yeah. Um, if every single door was open to me, I would do lots of things. I would get corporations to understand that global warming is the single most pressing thing facing the world. I'm actually very scared that right now with COVID and with everything, people are going to forget. Um, and that's going to go on the back burner and it can't. I think this is, this is the future of our planet. And so I would try to, I would speak their language and that you're being penny wise and pound foolish. You think you're saving money, but actually you'll save a lot more money by doing this because I think it's true. And I think that that's the way that they will understand. So if I could get every single leader in the world to actually agree to that, that would be huge. And the other thing is, you know, just seeing right now all of these cracks in society, the rampant inequality, just how many people are falling through the cracks. And especially, you know, here in the United States, um, how many people don't have health care, how much of a problem that is, how many people just don't have enough to eat. And it's it's really devastating. And right now we're at a time where all of it has just been put to the forefront. And if I could wave a magic wand and change policy and talk to the correct people to make that start going away and to actually start making systemic social changes, that would be incredible. Oh, and world peace, world peace. All right, world peace. Let's let's get some world peace while we're at it. <laughs> let's throw it in. <laughs> let's just throw it in. <laughs> Uh, and is there one piece of advice that you would give to leaders if you what would that be listen <laughs> listen to other people um be humble and be willing to change yeah very good very good uh, advice and and also i think that in general i mean great leadership is really to most of the times as a leader be able to say I don't know, but let's figure it out together. Yeah, absolutely. That's a true, true strength, not a, not a weakness. And what about you 10, 15 years ago? What advice would you have given yourself? <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea what's going to happen, so don't even try to predict it. <laughs> no, it's, it's so funny. I mean, I think I would, I would, tell myself to just learn as much as possible, make as many connections as possible, human connections, and really value the people in my life, and to just try to get the most out of every single day. But that's what I'm going to take with me. It's going to be the people and the experiences more than anything else. And, and working very much as a, 
as a writer is that of course it's not a lonely life but because you have lots of contacts with a lot of people uh but still um what what is in terms of human connections is it easier for you Has, does it have to do with your so to say professional sphere or is it more the personality that decides uh, how we create human connections I think it's more the person, the human. My two closest friends are my roommates from college. You know, they've known me for a long time <laughs> and they remain kind of my my closest friends and you know that takes effort and that takes time and that takes a lot of time for for building. But there are some friendships that I've nurtured, you know, over the last decade that did originally come from a professional sphere, but there are a few people who who are writers or who are in this world who ended up becoming very close friends because of who they are, um, and because we connected on a human level. And I think ultimately, like that's what you're going for. That's you're so lucky if you can meet people who are good people, who are good humans, um, with whom you can connect on a personal level, and it takes energy to maintain those friendships. So I think that. There's only a certain number that you can have. However, you can have a bigger net of people who you like and who you admire and who you make an effort to you know, be in touch with every so often. And I think it is much more valuable if it's a personal relationship and not something that is only professional. That said, professional connections, professional acquaintances are of course important, but that's a different thing. In my mind, the most important thing is to just always be a decent human and to try to help people when you can. And I've also gotten better at realizing when I really can't help any, someone at that particular point in time and saying that and being honest about it rather than you know trying to give some crazy excuse. And I think that people, I think that that's also been helpful. And I appreciate when people do that to me, you know, when they tell me honestly that they can't do something and why they can't, because I would never want to put people off without even realizing I'm doing it. It all comes down, you know, this is a theme that you and I, that we've talked about a few times now when we were talking about businesses and leaders and change. Communication is just so important. I think good open communication is the key to so many good relationships and good things. So true. Are you good at asking also for for help or support when you need it? Yes and no. So yes, I'm. I think this comes from kind of my training as a journalist and from always being surrounded by people who are a lot smarter than I am and who know a lot more than I do. I mean, I love that. I actually love the feeling of being the stupidest person in a room and just learning from people and soaking it in. And what I've done, you know, in my in my career, I always write about things that, you know, that interest me but not something that I'm an expert in. So, I'm very used to asking people questions and to saying, you know, I don't know, please help me from the from the very kind of from the very bottom. But I've become a lot better also at asking, you know, just asking for help and admitting when I don't understand something, when I don't know something. I think it's come from journalism, but it's translated to other things. I'm very able to say, hey, I, I don't get this, please help. Or I'm struggling with this, please help. Where I think I'm worse, I don't necessarily communicate as much about 
emotions. Um, I think that probably comes from my Russian background. <laughs> Why? Um, Russian? <laughs> well, um, you know, it's, it, there's not a lot of therapy in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not necessarily going to tell you when I'm struggling, you know, emotionally or when I'm stressed or when, when th- those types of things are happening. So I'm much worse when it comes to that, but I'm very good when it comes to, you know, skills and, and that type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Russian therapist. <laughs> so, Maria, my, my final question to you is, what do you think the world needs most at this time? I think the world, oh, God, the world needs so much. But I think, I think it needs hope and it needs honesty and it needs all of these things that are wonderful in humans, but on a, on a global level on a global basis. I think it needs trust. It needs people to trust each other and to try to work together and to kind of see that we're all human. You know, it, it needs unity. Um, you see it on the, on every single level. There's just so much division right now. And I wish that we could all see ourselves as just human, not as, you know, one gender or one political party or one race or one ethnicity or one this or one that, you know, religion, whatever it is, there's so many different divisions. And, you know, in the, in the U S right now, there's just so much hatred that comes from a partisan place. I mean, it's crazy that people, you know, would get so upset because of political parties, you know, to me, that's just so stupid. It's, it's not, we're all humans. Um, but just to see these things erupting over and over, I think that what we really need is, is unity and understanding of our shared humanity that translates into kind of respect for one another and a willingness to, to work together, no matter who we are. So true. I mean, we're, we're all one anyways. So let's use our energy in the right way. And uh, as you say, uh, have life as a passion rather than anything else. Thank you so much, Maria. And uh, uh, just out of curiosity, how, how did you feel being on the podcast? I really enjoyed it. It was a very different conversation from others, and that's always such a pleasure. It's always so refreshing not to have to answer the same exact questions I've already answered 20 times. <laughs> so, so I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Maria. So remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast, or wherever you're listening to podcasts, and share this episode uh, with Maria, with people you know would benefit from hearing it. And please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao, Maria. Ciao. Thank you so much for having me.